Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of DevOps Decrypted. Uh, so this is episode number eight and we're going to talk about Kubernetes and other stories. So I'm not Romy. Um, Romy can't be here today. She's got COVID. Um, so yeah, we hope you get well soon, Romy. Um, we're going to miss you on the podcast. Um, but yeah, COVID comes to us all, it seems, eventually. Um, I've managed to dodge it. Shame Romy hasn't. So I'm here. Um, my name is Matt Saunders. Um, I'm here with Jobin. Jobin, you going to say hello? Hello, hello. We blame COVID if the episode isn't good. Yeah, uh, we're going to blame COVID for many, many, many things, including if the episode is not good. I'm fully on board with that. So yeah, it sounds like it's it's just the two of us today, Jobin, which is a bit of a shame. But um, hey, I'm sure we'll get some uh, some great conversations out of it, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure, and I hope Romy gets well soon, and she'll be back here with us next next time. Next time, here's to that. So in the meantime, um, we're going to go through a few things today um, on DevOps Decrypted. Um, firstly, I think we're going to talk about uh, the DevOps Handbook, um, which has just come out with a second edition, right? Um, have you read it yet, Javin? I haven't, actually, but we had been discussing about a book club, so we're thinking of reading it together, you know, since it is a second edition, I'm assuming it's good, right? I mean, otherwise, there wouldn't be a second edition. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Have you read it? Yeah, yeah I agree totally. So um, just for those who are not aware of, of what it is, it's uh, basically the um, the handbook for um, operating in a DevOps way um, from the likes of Gene Kim. So Gene Kim obviously wrote the, the Phoenix Project, the, the kind of book that's set off, um, booked in the DevOps world. Um, handbook, I think, came out about five years ago with lots of stories, lots of um, tales, um, adventures of people in enterprises going through um, uh, DevOps transformations. And I guess it was getting a bit stale. Um, or if not stale, we kind of needed updating for what's been going on in the last few years. Um, so I've had a flick through it. Um, I haven't read the whole thing yet, um, but it's basically, um, and again, I say basically, it's, um, it's it's far more than just a basic thing. It's it's dozens of excellent stories um, about how to do DevOps um, in a large enterprise, um, fully updated for 2022, um, which is great. Um, yeah, I, I'm definitely looking forward to reading that. I, I was actually talking to John Mott the other day. Uh, for those of you who don't know John Mott, he's a CTO at, at Atwist, and uh, he uh, pitched the idea of having a book club. Uh, there's a lot of folks who are interested in DevOps these days uh, within Adaptivist and uh, obviously outside of Adaptivist. So we are looking at launching a book club uh, internally uh, to read the book together and see what we learn from it. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of conversations around it, right? Uh, everybody has their opinion on everything these days. So I'm looking forward to, you know, uh, maybe discussing, maybe debating uh, certain things within the book. I think it's a great idea, especially if you get a, a nice broad cross-section of people yeah, um, exactly. in, in the club. Um, because a, a lot of the time you see, um, particularly when I used to get, do out, go, uh, go out consulting, going out to lots of different uh, companies, big and small, um, you'd often find maybe there's a couple of people who had read the Phoenix Project um, or maybe someone's read the handbook. Um, and and their heads are like full of ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and the difficulty with a lot of the DevOps stuff, um, I feel, is that it's um, it, it's not as actionable as some of the technical things we can do. 
we, we talk about exactly right. technology, yeah. right? Yeah, um, it's not as actionable. So you're looking at, um, and even even worse than that, it's kind of a bit abstract. We're talking about case studies from big organizations. It's not a, a thing that says, this is how you do DevOps. It's, this is how we implemented it. These are the things that we did. Um, these there are the is in one size that fits all, right? So obviously you're not talking about having a, a, a script and following it everywhere we go. That's not possible, right? DevOps is a culture. It's not just implementing a tool. So you cannot actually have it implemented the same way everywhere. Even if it is a tool, you can't do that. So imagine doing that for a process, a culture, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that is uh, is why I think it fits beautifully into like this book club idea. Um, yeah. Where um, it, it, it's great if everyone goes off and reads the handbook, but everyone takes different things away from it. Um, and everyone has different interpretations of how you can implement this stuff at your organization. So uh, you and me, we kind of head off departments, we'll read it and be like, well, yep, so we can manage upwards and change these things with our bosses, manage downwards and change these things with the people who work for us. Um, but you compare that to the people who are on the ground, maybe yep. doing, got the hands, um, more hands-on, um, and also the people up at the, the exec level different interpretations and i think what's going to be really good is if within a database you can get a broad cross-section um nothing worse than um, like when a um you know a, a new technique or, or book goes around a few a small set of people and they're all like ah oh, we want to do this stuff and everyone who, who wasn't part of that goes what on earth are you talking about what's this new fad stuff why yeah, yeah. um and more like the people who have read it try and implement it but nobody else has been following along um, so you know it's, it's almost destined to failure. Um, that ain't going to happen, right? <laughs> Everyone who that to us is reading the handbook, um, taking away the. I, I think it's the difference between. Um, I remember at school doing like um, pure maths and applied maths, and the pure was all the science and all the um, algebra and lambdas and things like that, and um, the applied was actually well, how do we actually use this in our role, in our life. Um, and maybe one of the big takeaways here is, is, yeah, get together a group of people, read the book, read it a chapter at a time, um, figure out all the NIH stuff. Like, oh, no, we couldn't do that here um, because we're not like Nike or we're not yeah, like yeah. Um, American I, I'm, Airlines. Right? I'm certainly looking forward to reading it because having, a, having written a book myself on Jira development, that is more technical. Uh, I know how difficult it is to write a book, but... I feel it's a lot easier when it is something as technical as that. But DevOps, I'm curious how 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 much breadth is covered in that particular book, and so I'm I'm looking forward to reading it and uh, learning from it, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, what about the second edition aspect of it? Um, it did surprise me somewhat um, when it came up with the second edition of the handbook because the IT revolution thing. So, the company that um, Gene Kim runs to publish the books. Um, their thing seems to be to put out, um, to keep putting out new things. So obviously, based on the success of the Phoenix project, um, you build up and have a similar group of authors with some new ones putting out the handbook, and then other books such as um, BVSSH from um, Better Value, Sooner, Safer, Happier from John Smart, um, Agile Conversations, um, the Mark Schwartz book around um, bureaucracies. But then they're, they're kind of going back here. Um, and, and that was an interesting thing I found here because we hear a lot about things like, well, we're over DevOps now. We know we're in a post-DevOps world. Um, the, world is po uh, the word is poison now. 
um, and means too many different things, so we can't use it. Um, and yet here we are going back and revisiting some of the, the same ideas, but with a modern spin on it. So is DevOps dead? You, you would say so, but again, think of DevOps. Uh, obviously, we have been talking about DevOps for quite a long time now. But at the same time, there's still a lot of organizations out there who are still trying to figure out what DevOps is, right? Uh, I think you take the state yeah. of the adolescent report that we did last year, or many of the reports that's coming out. Uh, obviously, there's a huge chunk of people who are already using DevOps who, who think of uh, themselves as experts in the DevOps area. But then there is also a larger part of the organizations who wants to get on the DevOps train, still trying to figure out where DevOps is. So I, I'm pretty sure uh, it can benefit still a lot of the people. And the technology also has evolved a lot. I mean, uh, probably five years back, I, I don't know when the original edition was out there, Kubernetes yeah, was probably not the standard, right? I mean, things are moved on. Now Kubernetes is a standard in container orchestration. That's just one example. There was no DevSecOps at that time, uh, or at least the term was not coined. Security didn't have this much of an importance, right? Not many organizations were on cloud. Cloud migration wasn't exactly a thing at that time. So I, I think over this past five, six years, a lot of things have changed. Uh, so that's probably accounted for in the, in the new edition. But the original uh, fundamentals still remain, right? Yeah. So um, just um, analyzing the things that you were mentioning there, we've had, if we look at all the things that have changed across the three tenets, like the people, process, and technology, um, most of them seem to be technical. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Kubernetes. Um, yeah. Yes, more cloud services. Um, and you know, maybe some process stuff, so DevSecOps and GitOps. Um, but then the, the people aspect, the culture thing, is pretty much still the same. Um, and I think that's a good thing um, because it's all about ideals and about um, you know, going back to the three ways. Um, and the five ideals from the Unicorn Project, those things are still kind of the same. That's um, exactly what I meant when I said the fundamentals remain the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, so I'm reminded of, um, I, I spent a lot of time in the car um, driving up between um, various places, doesn't matter. Um, and um, one of the things I listen to in the car is um, the IT Revolution podcast, mm. uh, Gene King's podcast. Um, and... He was doing a review with um, some of the original authors of the handbook. Um, so Patrick Dubois, uh, John Willis, um, and Jez Humble, uh, and Nicole Forsgren, who's coming in on the second edition. Um, and I felt a little bad. I thought, um, I'm not really using my time well here because these folks are basically just, it's like some old friends who are met up in a pub and they're going, oh, do you remember when we did this? Or remember when we talked about that? And this is how it all started off. And um, we did DevOps days in Ghent and you know, I was talking about all these things. I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I want to hear about the new stuff. Um, but then I started realizing that actually, no, that's the reason why those things were noteworthy, things like DevOps days getting kicked off, um, things like the Agile sysadmin um, talks at um, uh, Velocity, 10 deploys a day, that sort of stuff um, from Flickr. The reason we keep coming back to those um, but without just sounding like old boars in a pub, is that the techniques are moving on, um, but the principles are still the same. And Absolutely. those principles were the ground, the groundbreaking things that people started doing. 
um, back in the day, and it was all cultural, right? Uh, absolutely. That's probably a good segue into our next session, right? I mean, uh, have you seen the latest Kubernetes documentary that came out? Uh, you you talk about, talked about the IT revolution, uh, uh, yeah. and it was fascinating uh, to watch how Kubernetes has evolved uh, over the years and uh, the story behind it. Uh, did you get a chance to watch it yet? or? So I've watched some of it. Um, I know you've watched it all. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was fascinated it. by it, absolutely. Um, I was fascinated by, um, uh, uh, you know, I'm terrible at this. I'm kind of looking at the the, the meta about this documentary, um, the big production values. It's like um, um, a panorama. I'm sorry, um, doesn't mean anything to outside UK audience. Um, but a current, current affairs documentary, um, all kind of good lighting and people being interviewed, um, like something you'd see on Netflix. Um, and it's a documentary about Kubernetes. Um, yeah, you know, it was about an hour and a half long, all in all, I think. Um, and I, I think you would it, really be surprised. I was actually looking at who published it. Uh, so uh, there is a YouTube yeah. channel called Honeypot, and looking at the channel, there's a lot of tech documentaries. It's not just Kubernetes. Kubernetes was one of it. I, I see uh, GraphQL, Elixir, so many different documentaries. I'm, I'm mm. planning to watch some of it actually. Uh, but yeah, this was a really good one to watch. Excellent. I mean, I think um, my um, my amazement at that is more like that. This stuff is at a scale now that warrants that, and where you can have a you know a documentary about how um, something um, something technical emerged to solve a lot of problems, um, and it reminds me just how big Kubernetes has become. Um, you see yeah. some of the the original people who were involved, people like um, uh, Joe Bida, um, Tim Hawking. Um, Kelsey, Hightower, etc. Um, you know, th these these are now people who we're looking back at as being, um, you know, kind of making seminal contributions to how computer science works. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know if we can talk about them in the same kind of um, language as people like, you know, Steve Jobs, Wozniak, uh, Bill Gates, etc. Um, but it's that kind of feeling for me. Um, that's, which, the, that's the beauty of the documentary, right? I mean, it actually takes us through people who developed Kubernetes and who were, who were a force behind it. It's not just the mm. Steve Jobs who are changing the world, right? It's also people like Brandon and the folks that you mentioned. Yeah. They're working on a technology that's changing the world and it actually gives us motivation to work on something similar, right? A, a, a technical expert or a DevOps expert like us can also change the world. It, it, it's all in our hands. I mean, it's small teams who is yeah. changing the world, not individuals, I get that. But at the same time, somebody has to be a driving force behind it. There are a lot of technologies out there now. Kubernetes is one of it, but you know, what's going to be the next Kubernetes? Who knows, right? I mean, there's serverless architecture coming out, there's lambdas, there's a lot of things floating around. Um, yeah. So that's why it was specifically interesting for me. It's not just Steve Jobs who should get all the credit, right? <laughs> there should be Matt Saunders. Hey, <laughs> standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, yeah, exactly. That, that term kind of comes to mind there. Um, so, so yeah, so um, so I've watched some of it. Yeah, Sorry, that, there were a few key thing. takeaways for me, right? I mean, how how they decided to make Kubernetes an open source initially on, right? How they convinced the hierarchy mm. at Google uh, to make it an open source because obviously Google didn't want to give it away for cheap, right? Uh, it, it, I mean, yeah. a container orchestration platform that, that wasn't there or at least it wasn't 
uh, as big as Kubernetes is today. So there was an opportunity there. Google didn't monetize on it uh, because of you know how the people envisioned this to be uh, in the world five years from then. Right? That was huge, I believe, just by making it as an open source. Uh, a lot of collaborators came along. A lot of companies joined later on, you know, even big companies like Microsoft, Red Hat, IBM, they all joined hands together with Google at some point uh, to, to further develop Kubernetes. That was huge in my opinion. I, I don't know what you think about it. If it was not an open source originally, probably Kubernetes wouldn't be here or, or at least wouldn't be as popular. Mm. So, um, so I've got skin in the game here um, in mm -hmm. terms of open source. Um, because I genuinely believe that um, the excitement around being able to download software and tinker with it, um, it you know, even just as a, an individual, um, was a, a massive catalyst for, for my entire career around this stuff. Um, and, you know, people, um, we've noticed how things like um, the open source aspect um, has made um, Linux, such a tremendous success, yeah. and all sorts of software around that, um, just by giving people the opportunity. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to turn this onto, well, I was doing this, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I feel like my experience mirrors um, how a lot of people would be thinking, um, and not just individuals, but organizations, where you get hold of something that is that does a job and does it really, really well. And you think, well, yeah, how can I add to this? How can I make this do some more things um, that will um make things better for me um or help me to um working for the company i work for to succeed um and without it just becoming like um um patents uh patents and intellectual property um and you know something where we end up dominating the world to the expense of everyone else well the answer is that you make it open source um and it seems like we've been around the block a few times on this now where you have these patterns of people building stuff on open source um, and then and, and benefiting from the proliferation of people and companies who um, can add something to that um, for the greater good. Um, it's yeah. not just a complete socialist project, but it just it always happens to turn out that way. And every yeah. attempt by some company um, to kind of close it down and make money uniquely off it ends up failing. Yeah. You're right. Another fascinating thing was, you know, even when you talk about open source, we sometimes think of it as individuals coming together and contributing, right? But that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. It's big companies yeah. coming together, right? The companies like um, IBM, uh, Red Hat, they are all coming together and joining hands and they are even spending a lot of money and uh, engaging their own teams to contribute to the open source project, which is huge. I mean, if it was just me or somebody down in the basement, working on an open source project, that probably wouldn't be enough, right? But when you have the power of a big company uh, helping you, that's huge. Yeah, uh, and, and it's different aspects of the same thing um, because um, for every open, well, not for everyone, I don't have any numbers on this, but you, you get uh, you know, the big open source projects, things like Kubernetes. Um, but then there's also all these littler things, the smaller things that, um, maybe less so come from a hobbyist angle anymore, um, but can be individual contributors, individual people, um, but ultimately um, someone's paying for their time. And so, yeah, I think, it, yeah, it does come down to, to companies um, being prepared to let their employees um, spend time 
on um, writing code that um, that then goes off and, and is free. Um, yeah. And the the beauty of the open source is that if it was the wrong thing or if it isn't actually useful, then it just kind of it just does it gets left on the shelf over there. And maybe yeah. some company um, who originally invested in it um, has a the fallacy of the sunken cost around it and keeps it going. Um, but ultimately it doesn't prosper because it wasn't the right thing. Um, and and the more of a right thing these things are, or these pieces of software are for big companies, uh, the more they'll, they'll, they'll continue contributing to it, right? Yeah, I agree, yeah. Uh, the second biggest takeaway uh, was yeah. that, you know, they started relying on Docker. Uh, so Docker was obviously a big thing at that time. Uh, it, it just had become a big thing. Uh, that was the main container platform. Uh, but what they didn't do was, you know, create another beast like Docker, but instead they relied on Docker and built on top of it a container orchestration system. Uh, that was huge in my opinion, because if I had gone the other route and started competing with Docker, maybe things would have been different, right? So they saw that there's value in Docker. They they saw that Docker is doing something really, really well. They just adopted it and built on top of it. Kubernetes on top of it. It's interesting because, um, yeah, you see these two companies as being kind of fierce rivals. Um, and for a long time, um, there was, yeah, the which one's going to prevail? They seem to be competing. Um, and um, from what you're saying here, and I must admit, this is a part of the documentary that I haven't watched yet. Sorry. Um, I think what you're saying here is that. Um, um, Kubernetes almost quiesced down to, or acquiesced to, to Docker. And said, well, there is some interesting insight about this in the documentary. So mm. obviously there is a lot of, there was a lot of power play in the beginning. Uh, at least Docker thought of Kubernetes as a competitor, but yeah. I think on the Kubernetes side, it was, it was not the case. They actually relied on Docker and they didn't want Docker to be a competitor. Uh, there was obviously certain aspects of it which was viewed as, you know, two fierce competitors, as you, as you just mentioned. That was the perception I had too before seeing the documentary. Uh, but one of the biggest success factors they they say as uh, say was about Kubernetes becoming a success was, you know, when Docker eventually came out and joined hands with uh, Kubernetes. Uh, yeah, that that's when they realized that okay, finally this has become a reality, you know. Uh, now we are acknowledged by Docker. Uh, we are not the fierce competitors anymore. So th that was a huge milestone for Kubernetes. It almost feels like um, I need to quote, I think it's from War Games, where someone says, like, um, the only way to win the game is not to play. Um, and yeah, we, we've, there was all this huge hype around container wars. You know, I've been to meetups in London um, where you'll have. Um, the different rivalries for um, container orchestration, you know, Docker, um, Kubernetes, um, um, Mesos, Nomad, etc. That's sort of a battle, um, and it's been interesting to see how, um, because those technologies don't entirely overlap, mm -hmm. you've got an opportunity to well just exploit the bits of each of them that's, um, that each one of them does well. Um, yep. and let the market sort them out but, you know just just let um the, the force of how people end up adopting this and using it um and it seems like the the one that's won out um and you know it's pretty you know some people at hashicorp may disagree but it's um 
it's it's pretty clear to me that Kubernetes is kind of has won the orchestration war. Um, it is sort of and, becoming the standard now, right? Yeah, yeah. Just be be open, be pragmatic about it, um, and and it prevails. I mean, it could be that the Kubernetes people um, didn't even see being the dominant orchestration engine as being a goal, and maybe that kind of helped them get there. It's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? It is, and 2017, in many ways, became the biggest year for Kubernetes because Docker fully embraced Kubernetes. Finally, uh, AWS announced EKS. Uh, you know, Microsoft came out with AKS. So everybody adopting Kubernetes within their cloud platform. That was huge for Kubernetes. It finally became the standard that they were hoping for. Right? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I remember. We had been using for one of our customers ECS for a long, long time because you know Kubernetes was not officially supported on AWS. So when we started yeah. migrating our platform or our product, uh, it, it's it was a website used by millions. Uh, we took it to AWS, and you know there was no Kubernetes available at that time on AWS. It was such a such a shame, and we we actually used ECS at that time. But as soon as EKS was made available, there was this huge. Uh, sigh of relief. I think everybody wanted to migrate to EKS and uh, start using Kubernetes. Yeah, so I find that fascinating. It's like, you know, so e ECS has been around for a while. It's a mature uh -huh. product. Um, but I know I don't get anything like the kind of positive feels for it as I do um, when I'm running something um, that's got Kubernetes underneath. Um, maybe that's because I'm, a, you know, maybe not a Kubernetes expert, but I'm good at it. Um, and it's a portable skill that I've managed to learn by playing with it because it's open source. Um, and it's almost like there's this kind of unhealthy alliance. No, 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 it's a healthy alliance between <laughs> Kubernetes and all these cloud providers because the cloud providers know that people aren't necessarily going to go all in for their proprietary technology because they're scared of things like not having the skills in it, um, prices being jacked up, um, any sort of anti-competitive thing. And so having this standard, um, the standard thing where you can um, not only deal with the hypothetical solution where a cloud provider says, right, we're going to charge you 10 times as much and you can't move because you're locked in. Um, but even just having that run up to it, where being able to, um, before you even start using EKS, or maybe after you started using it, when you want to understand this stuff a bit more, we're playing with Minikube on your laptop, playing with all the little individual bits um, and being able to tinker with them, open source. It's an absolute dream, right? That, that's the thing, Brad. I mean, there's this cloud agnostic angle to it. So when you look at it from the organization point of view, they would value that a lot. Your application is on Kubernetes. Okay, it is on EKS today, but what if you want to move to Azure tomorrow? That, that's not a hard thing because your application is already on Kubernetes. So you just sh ship it out. There is all these yeah. IDP platforms, which is helping you connect to multiple clouds at the same time, maybe even running the cluster on multiple clouds at the same time, right? Even on on-prem. Uh, so, and you have now solutions coming out like EKS anywhere now, nowadays. So you can even install mm. EKS uh, within your firewall. Um, so I, I think that changed the game. That is where, uh, Kubernetes uh, changed the game because you're not relying on a vendor-specific technology like ECS. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, and yeah, it's it's an absolutely fascinating um, aspect of um, 
almost businesses versus free will yeah or, <laughs> um and 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 how we've kind of got to this kind of level state somehow um of the balance between the open source and someone making some money out of what we're yeah. doing um then yeah it didn't come overnight um maybe we're there now maybe we're not I don't know, but um, before we get too philosophical, we should probably move on, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I I wonder what the future holds for Kubernetes because I keep hearing about a lot of different things. At the same time, I don't know, is serverless going to be part of Kubernetes at some point? What else could be there for Kubernetes? I know it's still evolving, but kind mm. of all already become the standard, right? What more can happen on the Kubernetes world? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm seeing interesting things like um, um, almost a subversion, pardon the pun, of the model where we've built things um, previously. Um, so maybe before Kubernetes, we were doing lots of stuff by building out cloud services with Terraform um, or CDK. Um, and one of the things we started doing, I've seen our, some of our internal teams um, now starting to kind of ask these sort of questions where they're doing things in Terraform, doing things like building EKS clusters in Terraform. Um, and so maybe they're building something in EKS um, mm -hmm. and it's for an application and there's some EKS there. Um, and there's also perhaps um, um, an RDS, a database, an Aurora database and some serverless functions. Um, and I slightly mischievously say things like, well, um, why are you using Terraform to build all those things? Maybe just use Terraform to build EKS. And then you can use external things from within EKS, uh, within Kubernetes, and have Kubernetes manage your database for you. And have mm -hmm. objects, Kubernetes objects of Amazon databases and serverless things with Knative, et cetera. Um, so maybe that's a trajectory. Maybe mm -hmm. Kubernetes becomes the, the, the dominant plane for managing things inside and outside Kubernetes. Don't know. That's, That's an interesting thought. Yeah, I wonder if that would make it more vendor-specific. I, I don't know. I mean, we'll have to wait and see. It's a good thought. All right, so um, let's But that's all on. about Kubernetes, right? I mean, Sorry, yeah. what's happening on the Docker side? I hear that mm. Adaptivist now has some level of partnership with Docker. Are we a value reseller now? So I believe we're, we're a Docker reseller now. Um, can we buy your Docker licenses from Adaptivist? Sorry, no, we don't get sales pitching here. Um, but um, yeah, so as we know, we talked about this a few episodes ago, didn't we, where um, Docker have um, started monetizing um, the product a bit more. Um, and yeah, there's all sorts of links to the previous conversation here. Um, but ultimately, um, we are, we felt, or Adaptivist felt, well, we're happy to pay Docker for something we were getting for free before, um, but actually this has become a really valuable thing for us. Um, and it's, and you know, part of me, particularly the open source part is like, well, we shouldn't have to pay for this stuff, um, but it's a good product. It is, it is a good product. It solves many, many problems. And it's only when you start trying to put together um, truly free open source alternatives to all this, um, that don't involve a lot of manual work or people becoming experts in containerization um, that you see that, well, yeah, the products are worth paying for. Um, yeah. You, you so, can yeah. still use it for free if, if it is for personal use, I believe. So, mm. But if mm. you are an enterprise and um, if you need help with Docker, we are here to you know help you with services. But if you want to just 
buy it, we can help you with that as well, right? Or mm. both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I would be surprised if there wasn't more of, of this. Um, people becoming resellers. Um, for us, um, again, I don't want to get too sales pitchy, but um, you know, we, we, Adaptivist is is there to try and solve customers' problems. Um, and one of them, one of those problems that we see a lot, especially in your world, Jobin, right, is yeah. um, the need to have a, a fluid um, and friction-free development process. And if we're deploying stuff into ECS containers or EKS clusters, um, Kubernetes clusters um, in containers, then um, having developers giving them access to um, friction-free and simple containerization tools on their laptops is absolutely vital. Um, and, and yeah, we'll, um, so yeah, we'll happily sell you Docker licenses as well. <laughs> All right, so that's that. Um, so getting towards the end today, I think. Um, so something we started a couple of episodes ago was... Um, this, uh, this one thing you should be doing in DevOps. Um, have you got anything on this one today, Jobin? I mean, I was just thinking that, I mean, since we're talking a lot about Docker and Kubernetes, I would actually say containerization, maybe. I mean, I know it's not for everything, right? But if you're thinking yeah. about modernizing your IT infrastructure or, or your uh, whatever products that you're working on, if you're not already using containers, maybe it is time to start looking at it is what I'm thinking. Uh, at least learn about containerization, start looking at it if you're not already using it. If you're already using containers, that's great. But are you using a container orchestration system? If not, you know, why not start looking at Kubernetes? Um, yeah, we went with small things in the last episode. So I'm thinking maybe it's time for an upgrade, you know, start looking at containers if you're not already looking at it. Yeah, I mean, we spend so long um, talking about the benefits from it. We, we forget there was a world that, that um that wasn't container dominated and yep. sometimes i find myself thinking well how, well hang on a minute how far down this rabbit hole are we uh is it just are we kind of gaslighting everyone else just by always just talking about containers um and um the answer is well probably partially um lots of companies can't can't do it um but maybe some of those places are, are now losing competitive advantage because of that um yeah well, we, we talked a few minutes ago about things like the friction-free experience you get by running Docker desktop. Um, and, you know, whilst there's devil in the detail and it's not that simple, um, going off and deploying things in, as containers into a cloud provider is now pretty straightforward. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a great thing, thing you should be doing. And I, I know of enterprises where they do that even for monoliths. It's not just for microservices anymore, right? I mean, uh, obviously, the original trend was, you know, redesign your architecture, do everything, uh, break it down into different microservices, one mm. container for each microservice, so on and so forth. But I think times have changed. I mean, uh, I hear about, you know, taking the full monolith and, you know, containerize it and put it in uh, maybe in an EC2 instance, maybe in Kubernetes, who knows? Um, I, yeah. it, it's like the differences, right? Uh, whether you re-architect your application or whether you just take it and move it, uh, it it's like the whole migration to cloud uh, funder, right? Same thing. Yeah. Mm. So, so sometimes I used to get short shrift from people where you talk about containerizing a monolith and people are like, well, no, it's, it's massive. Why would you want to containerize it? What's the point of that? Um, to which the answers now are, well, yes, you can run massive containers. There's dozens of reasons why you shouldn't. You should keep your containers lean, your image sizes, and um, 
you know, um, attack vectors, etc. Um, but actually, yeah, stick that monolith in a container. Start moving it around. Once you start moving it around, you can start realizing that actually, maybe you can strip some bits off it. You can strangle it. Yeah. Um, but just by having it in a container means that um, you can now deploy that somewhere else. Might take a while if it's ten gig, um, but you can do that. And that's the kind of um, and, and the analogy is, is going to get um, quite dubious here. Um, but the ability to, to shift that thing around the dock um, in a container um, starts to give you options. Right? That is huge because I mean that way you can now finally take it to the cloud, right? You don't have to hide behind your firewall anymore. Uh, granted, it's probably not the best approach, but in many cases, that's the first step that you can take, right? Baby steps, right? Then you obviously, mm -hmm. at some point, you have to think about redesigning the application. I get that. But at the same time, it, as you said, you know, it gives us easy ways to move it around, right? I mean, take it from stage to production. It's not that hard now anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm always... Um... When I, talk, when I talk about monoliths now um, and across over my personal interests, I think of um, people who have left an old car in a garage for years and years and years. And you go in and look at the car in the garage um, and figure out, well, that needs changing. The tyres need replacing. The fuel lines need replacing, etc., to make it more agile, to make it um, move. But actually, no, put it out of the garage. Let's see what, see what starts to fall off as you pull it out of the garage. And it's the same with an old monolithic application. Um, there's, there's almost a fear of touching these things. Um, and if he was to say, well, just migrate the thing to the cloud, then um, what is going to go wrong? Well, you can try it. Just sweep the thing up, go and deploy it to the cloud, find out which bits left are dangling off the bottom um, by a thread, um, and then go start fixing them. And then before you know it, you've got something that you can drive around in um, and deploy to different places. Um, so yeah, let's get those monoliths in the cloud. Let's get the containers on the cloud here. Mm -hmm. Okay, so my thing, what you should be doing in DevOps, um, um, I'm going to pick something that's um, very timely here in the, in, in the UK. Um, so the UK is currently battened down, battened down the hatches um, because we're in the middle of something called Storm Eunice, um, which is sort of, it's windy, it's rainy, it's terrible. Um, and I've been watching um, on YouTube in my lunch hour, I was watching videos of um, massive airliners landing at London Heathrow Airport um, and looking at the skill involved in pilots um, putting those planes down and things like they're flying into a, a sidewind. So the plane's almost flying along at 45 degrees. I'm thinking, oh my God, that's a lot like DevOps, isn't it? Um, and then I realized actually, no, it's not. It's not like DevOps at all. Um, that's a really unique situation where um, you've got a single person well, actually probably a couple of people, a couple of pilots in charge of hundreds of people's lives um, where the decisions they make um, could, you know, it's, it's, it could be do or die. You know, it could be literally lethal, make the wrong decision in these difficult situations. Um, and so my DevOps thing that you should be doing is looking at situations like that where um, you've got freak occurrences happening or unusual things happening um, and you're now really reliant on um, on key people, they're heroes. Um, and that's great in an airplane context. We want the best people landing those planes, getting them on the ground. Every single one went on the ground, brilliant. Um, 20 or 30 of them went around um, trying to land. They're like, nope, not having this. Um, that's kind of like a, foul, what is that? A failed deployment? 
I don't know. Um, and so my DevOps thing for today, based on the wind literally howling around my house right now, is don't put your people in that situation. Um, we've got the ability to, um, to avoid difficult deploys where a deploy is landing an aircraft on the, on, on the ground um, and, and taking out the responsibility of being like key people away um, because, you know, being a hero is wonderful, um, but ultimately it's fraught with danger. Um, even in a business context, you don't want to be the person who deployed that piece of software and then you get crucified um, because it doesn't actually work and you're down, you've lost money. Um, you don't want to put your people into that position. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so I love watching those those planes landing. My, my fingernails are a little shorter. Um, and I'm thinking those are all the things you do not want in DevOps. You want the plane on the ground, yes. But this is this is software we're talking about, not aeroplanes. Um, yeah. Don't be like aeroplanes. <laughs> I love it. I mean, yeah, I, I certainly do not want to be the person who is deleting the production database. And if that happens, please don't blame me, blame the process, right? Or blame mm. whoever is in charge of the, <laughs> the whole situation. I, I think we talked about it in the past. I mean, there shouldn't be any cases where an individual or a group of people are in charge of, you know, uh, making sure that the production application is up and running. There should be process around it and there should be things we should be handling earlier before the production system is down. There should be multiple checkpoints on, on everything. Uh, so many things that you can do, but I really like it. Yeah, if if there is a couple of people or a person in charge of your critical system, yeah, don't let that happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thinking about this some more and possibly stretching the analogy too far, um, an alternative might have been um, don't fly those planes because they're going to land, they're going to they're going to lift off, but then at some point they're going to have to land, and the landing's the difficult bit. And it is a bit like um, um, uh, deploying software. We, we, we start doing deployments more often um, and more regularly um, because they are difficult and they have difficult points. And the more you do them, the easier they get. Um, and so the flip side of what I've just said about saying how DevOps is not like landing a plane is that actually there's a load of safety systems on that plane, a load of fail safes um, that, that mean that the plane did actually get that far. And you are in the position where, um, with a little bit of skill and finesse, sorry, a little bit, a lot of skill and finesse, those pilots can land the plane um, due to um, avionics, um, yep. sophisticated computers and systems that are protecting the plane and making sure that everything goes well. And that actually is a lot like DevOps. Um, and yeah, without wishing to get academic because we're kind of waxing lyrical now, um, some of the work of people like Dr. Sidney Decker Eugene Kim quotes quite a lot, um, done so much research on to, in plane crashes and stopping planes crash. And we see these planes landing. And part of you is like, well, yeah, I could be watching a crash about to happen, but probably not because so much work has gone into this to make it safe. And that's a lot like software delivery, right? That's why flying is more safer than being on the road, right? Mm, mm. It is. And, and it's, it's due to people working on it and yep. creating environments where you can do these things safely. Um, and yeah, it's a wonderful thing. All right, so I think we're at the end now. It's been a great conversation. Well, I thought I've enjoyed it. I hope people who are listening have. Um, just me and Joe been today. Um, sorry it's only the two of us going on. Hopefully you found it interesting. Um, that's the end of the podcast for today. Um, so we'll be back with episode nine um, soon. Um, but for now, say um, my big thanks to Joe Bin. 
Um, and thank you to myself, I guess, for hosting. Um, <laughs> this has been uh, DevOps Decrypted, part of the Adaptivist Podcast Network. So please do, you do go and uh, subscribe to that. And um, we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks for everyone.